0: Sales Tuners, episode 66. Chris Voss, author of Never Split the Difference.
1: A hostage negotiator is the ultimate cold caller.
0: This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from, from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time. It's time. It's sales tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Henry Kissinger, who said, if you don't know where you're going, every road will get you nowhere. Today's guest is, well, I'm not going to lie. He's the first guest I've had that has actually made me a bit nervous, and excited nervous, but nonetheless, Chris Voss is a legitimate negotiation expert, author of the national bestseller and the best book I've read this year, Never Split the Difference, and CEO at the Black Swan Group. Chris served as the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI and was also the hostage negotiation representative to the National Security Council. I promise you, you don't want to skip a single minute of this one. Before we dive in, I do want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors. You've heard me talk about them for a couple of months now, but you have to check out Costello. It's a deal management platform that aligns frontline sales reps, managers, and VPs so they can work together to consistently close more deals. They help reps get the right deal information from prospects, give reps and managers visibility into the quality of every deal, and help sales leaders understand what's working and what's not. Check it out at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O dot Make sure you stick around until the end, where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 66. But now, let's get to the conversation where Chris talks about how he leaves work at work.
1: Any sort of relaxation, if I can get my head completely around it, like I got, I got a Harley that I don't ride enough. I mean, that takes full concentration. I tend to think about what I do for, uh, for a living a lot. So I, I, need to, I need to get out and do something physically challenging. You know, I used to live on a boat when we'd take the boat out. You know, you got to pay attention to what's going on. So I like getting involved in outdoor activities that require my full attention. Otherwise, things are going to go really bad.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's that, it's that physical exertion that lets the mind take a bit of a break.
1: Yeah, definitely
0: one of the things that I found, because I, you know, my mind's always going and definitely not at the levels that yours had to have been, but the only place that I've found that I can completely escape is when I go scuba diving. Because if I'm not completely present under the water, I stop breathing and I'm dead. So uh funny how that yeah, physical you're going thing to is. kill yourself, right? That, that's right. So Chris, talk to me about your role today. What is the Black Swan Group and, and why does a typical customer actually buy from you?
1: we are coaching people in business negotiations you know we're actually doing a lot more in the sales area now um this has been a phenomenal never split the difference has been a phenomenal sales book in addition to general negotiations that initially had envisioned it really as executives that were negotiating day to day day in and day out uh, the deal makers uh which is absolutely the case but uh sales people are killing it with this so uh where th- that's that's really cool. I'm enjoying that a lot.
0: Well, that's exactly why I picked it up. And, and in this show, we talk about all the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to your success in this. But I want to go way back. Uh, you haven't always been the person you are today. How did you actually get started, and how did you get to this level of of negotiation?
1: Following stuff out of left field, you know, so to speak. Uh, I wanted to be a police officer. Ended up uh, finding out about federal law enforcement, and those guys travel all over the world. So. Uh, Initially, I was looking at Secret Service. They weren't hiring. The FBI was, you know, a little bit of the universe lining up to send me in certain directions. So I joined in with the FBI. Didn't particularly want to go to New York City. Ended up in New York City. Loved it. Absolutely loved New York City. Um, You know, I'm a small town boy from Iowa. Started out doing SWAT stuff. I was slated to go to the SWAT team on a police department. I went to the SWAT team with the FBI. Injured my knee. Loved crisis response. I so loved getting in the middle of you know high intensity yeah. situations. We had hostage negotiators, so I figured, you know, how hard could that be? I could I talk to people every day. <laughs> wow! I think that's probably like a salesman figures. You know, I talk to people every day. I should be able to sell. And it's a lot more complicated oh, yeah. than that. It's
0: a lot more in depth. So. That's kind of how I ended up as a hostage negotiator. That's fascinating to me. How hard could it be? I mean, you actually, as you were getting started in this, I read, uh, obviously in your book, you actually volunteered at the National Suicide Prevention Hotline as if that's not crazy enough. Like, talk to me about that experience. Talk about getting immersion in
1: emotional intelligence. I didn't realize that at the time because we didn't even have emotional intelligence as a term back then. But you talk about just getting absolutely up to your elbows on learning how to navigate people's emotions. In crisis situations, which is just normal situations intensified, then that, the dynamics aren't any different, they're just more intense. You really get into every type of quirk, every type of reading between the lines. And the crazy thing about it that blew me away was, like you figure, you see somebody does a, takes a suicide hotline call on a movie, and, and it seems like they're on the phone for hours. 20 minutes. And they told us when we were training on the hotline, if you're on a phone for longer than 20 minutes, you're doing it wrong. And one of the crazy things about that is in the application of the business world, like empathy saves time. I mean, slowing it down and doing a good emotional intelligence read actually speeds things up in really invisible ways. And you learn that on a suicide hotline. That's how you can get done in 20 minutes.
0: 20 minutes. It doesn't even seem possible if someone's truly calling in, threatening, I guess, to take their own life. 20 minutes seems like it's no time at all.
1: Yeah. And here's why, because when we do it wrong, then we're used to this gerbil wheel of communication with people who we're trying to give advice to or how to say it or how to be there. So we assume that doing it wrong is since everybody's doing it that way, that that's the way it should be done. And Everybody's doing it wrong. And and we see how long that takes. And the minute you learn how to actually use emotional intelligence, it's uh, the delay to save time. I mean, you get into it and things progress really quickly, actually, when you slow down.
0: So you started to allude about how you transfer some of those skills over into the business world. My audience, as you know, is full of sales professionals. And while I can't imagine any of them have ever had to negotiate life and death, what are some of the most important skills or tactics that cross over from your work with the FBI and the Suicide Prevention Hotline into the actual business world?
1: Crazy thing. And if a hostage negotiator is the ultimate cold call. I mean, when I, when I call into a bank, that's, that's a cold call. And one of the things that I've come to learn, especially since we've been doing a lot more with sales, hostage negotiators, I mean, we spend massive amount of times on the first three sentences out of our mouth. And most salespeople look at the first three sentences as the precursor to getting into it. Like we have to get to the point and have no idea how important, actually what the, the third word out of your mouth, what that word should be. and it hostage negotiators do that instinctively. And all the problems that salespeople have is because they focus more on where they're getting to, as opposed to the first four seconds of the call.
0: So uh, go a little deeper with that, because I, you're, you're right. It seems like a lot of salespeople, myself included, those first few sentences, first few words are kind of like throwaway words, as you said, to get to the point of where I'm actually going. So if I'm starting this, or actually I want to put it in your world, how were you opening up these quote unquote cold calls when you were calling into the banks?
1: first thing we'd have to figure out is how much to identify ourselves so that we become a human being on the other end of the line immediately, but we don't over-identify ourselves so that we begin to lose who we are as a human being. I mean, you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to be the one, you're trying to be share. You know, share is known by one name. Hostage negotiator, I'm going to call in and I'm going to say, hi, I'm Chris. I'm a negotiator. I'm here to talk to you about coming out. Now, that's actually precisely each one of those words is selected. And, and that's what I like to think of as that is a three-move game. Never think any more than three steps ahead. And that's designed to trigger response and a counter response that I've got ready, which is going to take me where I want to go. And so that particular opening, as a hostage negotiator, I'm saying, Hi, I'm Chris. I'm a negotiator. I'm here to talk to you about coming out. The other guy's going to say, I'm not coming out. And I'd say, I, I know you're not coming out now. I just want you to know what it looks like when you do so that you make sure that, we, that you stay safe and we treat you with respect. Now I'm set up to get to where I want to go. Those aren't throwaway lines. The most successful salespeople that I know, the really bad ones will say, hi, can I speak to Chris Voss? That's horrible. It's very well intended, but here's why it's horrible. The only people that call me on the phone and say that are salespeople.
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: So, I, what I've just what that what that's just told me is there's a salesperson on the other end of the line. They don't know me. They probably don't know what I'm after, and they're already hiding from me that they're a salesperson. So I don't I don't mind if this is a sales call, but if you were, if you were to call up and and again say, hi I'm Chris. I'm calling from the Black Swan Consulting Group. I see you've been on our website. I'm here to talk to you about how I can help you be a better negotiator. Bang bang bang. Now. Immediately, it's harder for me as a potential prospect to hang up, just like it was harder for the bank robber to hang up, because the guy on the other end of the phone is Chris, just, just Chris, not any more complicated than that, no more, no less. We know in hostage negotiation that the use of the other person's first name only, don't want to add last name, don't want to add expertise, don't want to add years, nothing. That immediately increases the chance that I'll see the other person as a human being and remember them. If I give you my first and last name, the last name already begins to dilute my first name and you're having trouble remembering what my first name is. I need I need to be Cher. I need to be I need to be a one. I need to be Elon. I need I need to be, you know, Barack. I need to be one name for you. And that will as long as you see me as just this one name entity, then you'll hang in a little bit longer. And your discomfort um, that would have come up from your salesperson, but I don't even know your name, that's been eliminated. Marcus Lemonis in, in uh, The Prophet does this all the time. He walks around, he says, hi, Marcus. That's it. He doesn't throw the rest of it in because he needs you. There's something about the first name only, which is why we want to get on a first name basis. We want the other guy's first name so we get more comfortable. Not not to make them more comfortable, because m- most people are used to, to being beaten by a salesperson with their, own, with their first name. I'm going to say, hi, Jim. You know, Jim, how you doing today? Jim, 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 Jim. I'm going to wear that thing out, and 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 that's also a salesperson's technique because, you know, Dale Carnegie says uh, the uh, our name to each of us is is one of the sweetest words in it in in the entire world. Well, at the time that was true, but it has been so over adopted by salespeople. That's what uh, that's what a lot of prospects are used to getting beaten with is their own name.
0: So you're saying then, don't use the prospect's name repeatedly like that.
1: Not repeatedly. Not repeatedly. Not until after they got your name another salesperson i was talking to about one time happened to be in real estate and he said you know we're having trouble getting our phone calls returned and our emails and we we make we take so much time getting to know the other side and i said that's exactly the problem and he said what and i i said say that again he said we take so much time getting to know the other side and they have no time getting to know you if i'm coaching you as a hostage negotiator I'm gonna say, Jim. You're gonna call him and you say, "Hi, I'm Jim." You might say you're a negotiator, more no more than that. Then you're gonna then you're going to say one. You're gonna pick one of two lines, whichever one you're most comfortable with. That's designed to get calculated to get a very specific type of response. Now, for hostage negotiation, one of those two responses is gonna be, I'm, "I want to talk to you about coming out," because I know immediately your next move is gonna be, "Say I'm not coming out." That gives me the opportunity to slip a couple more things in. And to hear you say some more reassuring tone of voice. Or I might get you as a hostage negotiator to say something to kind of catch the other guy off guard. The hostage taker is going to expect me to ask about the hostages. So I might say, Jim, call in and say say it exactly like this. Say, are you okay? And it's going to shock the bank robber that the negotiator is actually expressing concern for him personally. And then that that begins to make this personal bond. As a salesperson, what I'm going to want you to do, because every other salesperson has called your prospect, is try to get him to say yes. So what I want you to do is get him to say something where he says no or yes, but he feels in control. Because the next thing he needs to feel so that the call will continue, he doesn't want to feel out of control secret to keeping the upper hand is giving the other side the illusion of control. So what you want to say right away is, have I caught you in the middle of something? And he's either going to say, yes, but what's this about? Or he's going to say, no, but what's this about? This is the only time you, you like the word but because he feels completely in control. Now you're dialed in. Your are salesperson. He's giving you permission to go on if you get to the point. Now the point is, unless you're picking names out of a phone book, and I don't think anybody's doing that, you actually have a legitimate reason to be calling that guy. The sooner you get to that reason, the more at ease he, he gets, and also it reminds him, whatever the reason is, he was on your website, you filled out a form. You've got a legitimate reason for calling the prospect, so the prospect has has a legitimate pain. Which, because of the ADD world that we live in, has probably slipped to the back of his mind because his boss yelled at him, you know, he heard a song on the radio, whatever it is. So by reminding him what that legitimate need was, it, you know, it organically, gently, without being coerced, brings it right back to the forefront of his brain, you can begin to talk about that.
0: Well, what I heard there is, I mean, you're almost immediately, you know, your book, you talk about the concept of getting to know as opposed to getting to yes. But right there on that cold call concept, you were getting to know very, very quickly in the call. You know, I work with a lot of uh, sales teams myself, Chris. And one of the things I tell them is like, you're not in a sales conversation until you've heard no the first time. Too many people are trying to get those micro commitments of yes, 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 yes. And they don't hear no until they get to the end where it's no, I'm not interested. Go away. Exactly. So how how do we build that muscle of trying to get to know, I guess, or, or unlearn that muscle of trying to get to yes?
1: That might be the worst addiction that's out there. And while well, it sounds very simple, as as an exercise that I often do with people to let them know how hard it is to initially rewire the neural synapse, because you got you got your wiring to get yes is there. It's like building a new habit. It just takes a couple of repetitions, but the first reps are always the hardest. Switch your yes questions to no questions is, is is as simple as it is. Most people in dying for yes think that no is horrible, uh, but no is protection. That's one of the reasons why people say that teenagers learn not to take no for an answer from their parents because they just plow through no. That's looking at the right set of circumstances but come to the wrong conclusion. That kind of reasoning is would be the reasoning would you would say basketball playing makes you tall. So what's really happening between teenagers and parents? Teenagers are learning that once someone has said no, it's not that they're a parent on the other side, but it's a human being. The act of saying no makes you feel protected and in control, and you're willing to listen. And so knowing that no, when people say it, they feel protected and they're more willing to go on. That's actually you've just created a zone of safety you bought yourself a lot more latitude.
0: So how do we start to turn those, those yes questions into no questions? Can you give me some examples of, of that in the business context or sales context?
1: You can do it one of two ways. A lot of people like a closing question. So with everything I've laid out, would this be a good option for you? Now, you're clearly going for a yes there. Right. You just take the very first part of that and you either change it to a no-oriented question or you change it to what we refer to as a label. Now, the no-oriented question, as counterintuitive as it sounds, um, so with everything I've laid out, uh, would this be a ridiculous idea for you? They're going to say no. And the act of saying no with people feeling protected and in control clears their mind. They'll actually think the next two or three steps for you. Because when you say yes, you're worried about what commitment you just made. You're very anxious. You're, and, and you it actually creates a certain amount of confusion. But when you say no, is this a ridiculous idea? You go, no. As a matter of fact, and you might say, here's how it's going to work. It happens every single time when someone says no. That's that's
0: switching your would it be to is it ridiculous? Yeah, so now they're going to start to provide more context for you around that once they give you the no. Implementable context,
1: exactly. Very implementable context. I mean, I was, I was on the phone three weeks ago with a former president of one of the networks out here in Los Angeles. This is where I live these days. And you talk about a yes addiction, like- In the entertainment industry, of all the things that they're most addicted to, they are most addicted to yes. We got to get this guy on the phone because there's another player I want to bring into this potential deal that we're working on. And my partner said, well, we got to get him on on the phone. We got to get him to say yes to this. And I tried to explain the no-oriented approach, which, you know, they were afraid of. And I said, fine, um, we'll just get on the phone and I'll go along for the ride. What I intended to do all along was interrupt. And the first chance I got, I say to this guy on the phone, look, are you completely against this? Is this a ridiculous idea? And he said, no, no. As a matter of fact, if we bring them in, we need to set a meeting, and all of us need to get together in a room. We need to sit down and we need to talk about this so that we can bring everybody together. Hmm. Bang, bang, bang. All these implementation deals, details that immediately occurred to the prospect as soon as I cleared his head with a no. And this happens over and over and over again.
0: So he's literally laying out all those implementation steps for you, making your job much easier.
1: Yeah, Exactly. And, he's, and it's even more important that he's laying out the steps. Because I could lay those steps out, he's going to have trouble remembering them, and it will have been my idea. When he lays the steps out, it's more firmly etched in his brain, and it's a better idea because it came out of his mouth. And that's when I can go, wow you're so smart. Let's do it just like that.
0: <laughs> and so with that concept of, you know, getting, getting to yes, you said, no, 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 you don't want to hear them say, yes, you're right. You want them to he- say, yes, that's right. And, and it's, it's subtle, but, but it's not, I mean, it's kind of goes with what you're saying there, that becomes their idea. They've internalized it as opposed to them just kind of agreeing with you or pushing you off. So what, what, what tips or, or I guess tactics, Chris, do you have for getting someone to say that's right?
1: It seems very counterintuitive. You express their objections, you know, express their reservations. Neuroscience backs up now that we make most decisions. 70% of buy decisions are made to, to avoid loss, not to accomplish a gain. If you're avoiding loss, people's heads are cluttered with the things they're worried about, what their objections are, what they can't articulate, what people won't let them say. I might say to them, wow, you know, it seems like you're having a lot of trouble implementing this because this is a complicated solution. That lets them know that I am aware that it might be difficult for them to understand and they're free now to talk about it and it's cluttering their head. So the negativity in somebody's brain, the loss aversion, the reasons for not doing things are a much bigger deal inside people's brains than once they become articulated. I need them to get it, to express it out louder, to get these words in the air, so they can say it says, well, you know, it's actually not that bad once I say it out loud. Or even when you say it out loud, it's not that bad. Ah, you know, I, I was imagining it being negative in my head. But now that we're saying it out loud, just observing it, not denying it. You never want to say, I don't I don't want this to seem too complicated to you. A better way is, wow, this seems complicated. The denial, the two millimeter shift from the denial to the observation is the difference between closing and losing
0: clients. I'm fascinated by this, Chris, and I'm completely bought into how you just said it. And I've always been taught, you know, to sell against that loss as opposed to selling gain. But I had a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago who just completely challenged me on that notion. They laid out Maslow's hierarchy of needs and said, look, when you're selling to executives, they are, and they're, they're up in the top two tiers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They're looking at like self-actualization and of true vision. They don't care about loss. They don't care about all that stuff. And, and I, I just completely disagreed, but, Help me, help me better understand that. How can I go back to that guy and, and have a better argument now?
1: What their loss is in the self actualization, that's what they're afraid of losing. The loss isn't always what's on the surface. You know, in, and in many cases, in, in those higher order executives, there's absolute fear of loss there. Um, it is the driver of emotional behavior on every human being on the planet. That's why Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for articulating that. It's how we are as humans. As opposed to how we should be. So it is the single biggest driver. But what it is, you know, their self-actualization, they have a vision in their head and that's what they're afraid of losing. So you have to, you know, that that's why you need some, you need hostage negotiation skills to get inside somebody's head to see what they're actually, what that vision actually is.
0: I want to set up the basis now for a negotiation. I've always been taught you know, to know my walk away point going in, but I want to ask you like, how much research and preparation do I need to have before going into to making a deal?
1: You need some, you need less than most people think. One salesperson in particular, when, you know, when he had switched around his, his cold call approach to almost completely the hostage negotiators approach, and I said, yeah, you, you know, your are batting average now because he's calling in to get a meeting. His batting average for getting a meeting is 87 percent, 87 percent he gets a meeting. That's incredible. Um, I said, wow. So are you doing more research these days or less? And he said, oh, my God, less. He said, they're going to tell you so much more than I can ever find out online. Plus the stuff that people put online, most of it is made up. I mean, I got to get them on the phone as quick as possible. Because they're going to tell me 10 times more than I could ever find out online. Which means you do some research. You know, yeah, you'll take a look at somebody's LinkedIn profile. You won't memorize it. But, you know, you get get a rough feel for it because they're going to want to tell you about that LinkedIn profile anyway. A prospect's not going to want you to recite his profile verbatim. You can want you to pick some, one thing out of it and have you say like, wow, what was that like? That thing looked crazy. And then you're going to be off to the races with them talking, which is what you want your prospect to do anyway.
0: One of the things that you talk about is always trying to get your counterpart to make the first offer uh, in a deal. But what do you do when, when you can't get them there?
1: There may be no deal there at all. In, in, in every deal, no matter what anybody says, everybody's trying to commoditize the, word, the, the world. Uh, that's nonsense. Um, there's always competitors and there's always a favorite and there's always a fool. If you're the favorite, you shouldn't, you shouldn't throw a price out first because you're the favorite to get the deal and you need more intel from the other side. Now, if somebody's really reluctant to throw the price out, there's a really good chance that you're actually just there to drive prices down. They're trying to get a price from you as quickly as they possibly can. And then they want to move on. So that's why they're not going to throw a number. They're going to, they're going to want a number out of you. Look, I'm gonna say, look, you know, we need to know if you're even in a ball game. Um, and then if you if you throw out a number that's palatable at all, they're gonna keep you in the game as the fool just to drive the price down on the favorite. So the first sign that somebody doesn't want to throw a number is probably that you were never gonna get the deal anyway, or you're only gonna get the deal if you do it for nothing. So it's not generally speaking, it's not a terribly good sign. What we want to do is we want to talk much more in-depth about the problems that the other side is trying to solve. Now, if they'll jump right straight into their problems at some point in time, there's a pretty good chance after we've got a full full vision of the scope, a full idea of the scope, we might throw a number at that point in time, if and only if we can get a scope of the problem. If you can't get a scope of the problem from the other side, again, they never had any intention of doing business with you because they haven't envisioned you in that scope. And they're not going to share it with you. They look at it as proprietary information. They want to get off the phone with you as soon as you get a number. So if you can't get a scope and you can't can't get scope and you can't get the number, then what you want to say to the person on the other side, look, you know, I'm not sure that we can help solve your problems at all right now. Um, When there comes a point in time when we're a better fit, please keep us in mind. You have to finish with a uh, we. The last impression is the lasting impression. You have to finish with respect and appreciation and desire to be successful in the future. And then get off the phone because that person's wasting your time.
0: I can think about RFPs that I've lost. I can think about deals that have gone to procurement that I actually lost. They haven't envisioned you in the, the, their solution. I mean, that's wow! That's fantastic.
1: We had one 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 of
0: the guys. In,
1: in my in a Black Swan group, Derek Gaunt, um, hostage negotiator, he's doing brilliant coaching. He had he, he got a company uh, that he coached for two hours the other day. They had been the fool in a deal for fifteen months. Wow! Imagine the amount of money that that had cost them, that they had lost over fifteen months of wasted time
0: over a deal they were never going to get. Once you realize that, fifteen months in, how did you talk to him about that at that point? Now immediately, you're in action strategy.
1: You know, we, we like to refer for now, for, for lack of a better term, we're calling this the Oprah rule, because Oprah Winfrey, maybe one of the most successful people uh, certain, that, that has ever lived, certainly in the top five when you consider where she started, um, gender, uh, ethnic handicaps, where she is today her overriding goal with her and everybody that's ever worked for is they end every conversation on a positive note. No matter what happens, no matter how things went with anybody they've ever spoken to. And I've and I've and I've heard from some very reliable sources about uh Oprah having to tell the truth to a couple of people, speak very candidly to them about their behavior. But you don't hear about problems that Oprah has in public because she always ends positively. And if anybody's mad at her it's in public for about two seconds and then it's forgotten. Nobody, nobody stays mad at her because every single interaction that she and all of her staff has ends positively no matter what. So if you're the fool in the game, you got, you got to bring this to a conclusion with respect and appreciation and gratitude. Look, thanks for talking to us at all. We, you know, we're flattered that you ever even considered us. It looks like we can't help you right now. Please keep this in mind for the future. We want to be a great resource for you. And then finish.
0: Orchestrate your ending in a positive sense. Get off the phone and move on. That's that's really hard to do. I, I when, As you were saying it, I'm thinking about some very specific ones where I was not – Uh, as skilled or as um, I'll say mature to be able to do that. And I remember going and talking to my coach and him saying, look, Jim, your job in a uh, sales conversation is not to get your needs met. So it does you no good to get the last word, to try to get the upper hand, to leave as the smartest person in the room. So I'm I'm hearing you say it now and it's resonating in in a a much different way.
1: We've talked about so much about the importance of a first impression. You know, that the first impression is your second most important impression. (laughs) Your <laughs> last impression. Yeah, that's true. Is the most. It doesn't mean the first impression is not important. It's the second most important thing.
0: Chris, I want to switch gears uh, for just a moment. You know, uh, you uh, had a former boss uh, at a previous job send you to Harvard for their negotiation course, which I love, by the way. You were already at the top of your game and always looking to get better. And of course, the program director there had to challenge you. Talk to me about <laughs> that. Talk to me about how that went.
1: Well, you know, I got to admit, you know, uh, I, I saw that coming because a lot of people go like, yeah, you know, hostage negotiators, goes it's cute. What are you going to do? You know, what if I take your son hostage? And and he and he said, the part that's not in the book, he said, what, what kind of tactics are you going to use? And I said, nah, you know, I'm just going to ask you some open-ended questions. I say this very innocently because I got some open-ended questions that'll stop a charging rhino dead in its tracks. I got how questions that have stopped terrorists. But I know that if I say, ah, I'm just going to ask you a couple of opening questions, you know, he's going to think, oh, really, you know, let's try it out, which is exactly what he did. And he got a couple of other people in the room, too, because he thought he was going to, you know, he, he wanted a spar, he, uh, you know, like kid in the schoolyard, you know, let, you know, let's wrestle here while everybody else watches. And <laughs> I said, all right, you know, that, that's the way that you want it. That, that's fine. And I just, you know, I, I hit him with a how question. He, he said, you know, we got your son. Million dollars, give me some money, we kill him first thing in the morning. And I just, you know, you innocently deferentially, the power and deference is insane. I just deferentially said, how, how am I supposed to do that? You know, how how do I know that if I pay, you're gonna let him let him go? How do I how do we even know he's alive? <laughs> <laughs> and there's so much deference in that. That the other side has no idea that you've just completely flipped sl- the entire dynamic on. You know, you burden the problem creator with the problem in a respectful way, and they have no idea that they've just stepped into quicksand. It's a beautiful way to handle an aggressive negotiator. Beautiful way. And they feel powerful and in control. And uh, th- uh, this went on for about three or four minutes. Me just. Papering him with the open-ended questions that he laughed at 10 minutes earlier. Finally, somebody that was watching said, you know, stop,
0: don't let him do that to you. <laughs> I feel like my response to that original question, and again, obviously, I am not uh, that, that hostage or that kidnapper or that, that terrorist, but I feel like my response would be, I don't care how you do it. That's not my concern. Now, granted, I have the luxury of being able to look in from the outside on this, but is that not a typical response that you would get immediately? Two things. With terrorists and kidnappers, no, we never got that. And I can repeat
1: the question a couple of times with different points of view, like different emphasis. Like, how, how am I supposed to do that? You know, how, how am I supposed to pay if I don't even know he's alive? I don't, I don't even know Jim's alive. How am I supposed to pay you? How do I know you're going to let him go? Which is very deferential, leaving the other side in control. Now, now, real life negotiations, how am I supposed to do that? You actually should say that, with deference, not as an attack until the other side does says, you know what? I don't care how you do it. Just get it done. Because what you've just found out with that is you've pushed the other side as far as you can and you're still talking. They haven't slammed their hands down on the table and walked out. They haven't hung up the phone. They haven't slammed the door in your face. They're actually still trying to make a deal with you and you as a negotiator, your job is to find out how much is on the table. And when the other guy says, the other guy says, look, I don't care how you do it. That's the deal. You've actually just done your job. You found out how much is on the table. You're still talking. Nobody's stormed out. Nobody's called names. Nobody's screamed at each other. Nobody's blown the deal up. You're now in a position to cut the deal if you choose to, knowing that you have found out everything that's possible on a particular time
0: if you choose to. I think that's one of the keys there. Chris, as I was talking to you know several friends and even listeners of the show to say, hey, if you could ask Chris Voss anything about uh, negotiation, what would you ask? And they said, look, we've, we've read the book. We, we know that. Let's ask him about the other side of this, some not so successful negotiations. Are you able to talk about any specific, uh, potentially high-risk negotiation that you quote-unquote lost?
1: So it depends upon your uh, definition of lost. As a hostage negotiator, any conversation we keep going for a minute longer than the bad guy planned on have keeping it going, then we are winning. Most of the time, we have a pretty good idea of what the outcome is going to be in advance. And the question is do we want to lengthen or shorten the timetable? You know, if it's going to be something good, then we want to shorten the timetable. We want them to feel like they won sooner so that they'll let the hostage go or come out. If it looks really bad, and there are some negotiations where they have no intention of letting anybody go, They're just trying to set examples. Then we have to lengthen it out, try to have something better happen. I talk about the Burnham Sabaro case in the Philippines in the book. We thought we were going to get the hostages out. There was a point in time about a month and a half, two months before that went down. And the way it finished was it was a a botched rescue attempt by Philippine uh, scout rangers. They came over the terrorist group and just opened fire on the camp and hostages died. So um the final two out of three hostages were killed by friendly fire. The remaining American uh who survived, Grisha Burnham was shot in the leg. Now I thought we were gonna get them out two two months sooner, and we didn't. Um so we we misread the situation and have come to find out since, you know, there's a term which you may or may not be familiar with called single threaded, being single threaded in a business deal. Oh, sure. We were single threaded in that deal, Um, had a great relationship with the counterpart on the other side. I was, I was coaching a negotiator. We thousand percent read that our counterpart was trying to make a deal. And our counterpart got, um, got the limb sawed off behind him by his own team. Yeah. It happens in business all the time. It's one of the reasons why one of the major telecommunications companies out there, fully 50% of their deals that they sign don't go through because it was, they, they got single-threaded. The, the first time I heard about this in the business, a salesperson at a conference was saying like, yeah, they, you know, I was negotiating good, good faith. The person on the other side that represented the company didn't know another deal was cooking behind the scenes. And my counterpart, not only uh, did we not make the deal, my counterpart got fired. So that's what happened in the burn-ups of case. We got single-threaded, which is another reason why we focus much more on what we call now proof of life of the deal in business, uh, which most people are so desperate for deals, they're not looking for proof of life right off the bat. You know, they're, not, they're not testing it to make sure
0: that they're not the fool in the game. I like that notion, the proof of the life of the deal. Chris, one of the things that you shared with me, one of your weaknesses is your ability to overcome your own personal triggers. And so while you've already stated that as a challenge of yours, how do you work to prevent and, and protect yourself from those triggers?
1: If I'm genuinely curious about where you're coming from, there's something about the curiosity mindset, which is basically a positive mindset where we we feel we don't feel threatened. When you're genuinely curious, you won't get mad. Um, you'll hear more. You'll notice more. You'll listen in depth more. So if I get genuinely curious, like, yeah, you know, you you you're really dealing with me dishonestly here, but there's got to be some reason why, you know, it's got to be defensive. If I can get into a curiosity mindset, um, it's, that's an emotional hack. It keeps me out of negativity. Uh, if I can get into a grateful mindset, if I can say to myself, you know what, the only reason we're talking is because i got a pretty good life to begin with. I, I wouldn't be talking with you at all if I wasn't successful. So I should actually be grateful to be in this conversation. Um, that's another emotional hack. What you're really trying to do is keep yourself out of a negative mindset. It's not that emotions are bad for our thinking. It's that negative emotions are bad. Positive emotions actually increase our mental capacity. And so what we want to do is we don't want to be unemotional. We just don't want to be negative.
0: Chris, I'm going to take a quick break so that we can say thank you to my sponsors. If we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away. And sales sooners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Pipedrive is the sales CRM built by salespeople for salespeople. I love it because it allows me to visualize my pipeline, highlighting opportunities and potential problems, ensuring I don't drop the important activities and conversations needed. And the managers I work with love it because it's simple and they don't have to nag their team to actually use it. But sales sooners, don't just take my word for it. You can check it out for yourself for free for 30 days at salessooners.com slash pipedrive. We're back, and it's time for the money round. Chris, are you ready for the money round?
1: All right, ding, 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 ding. Let's go.
0: Here we go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional?
1: I think that I'm open to learning. I'm really hungry to find a better way of doing things. I think I'm just open to learning, right? I may I may not be very fast at learning, but I'm open to it.
0: <laughs> if you were to start over today in your career, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing?
1: Being a little less intense, you know, try, try to be a little bit more in a positive mindset. I didn't, you know, I, I like being intense. Uh, my natural state is a little combative. You know, for the longest time when I was upset with FBI management, I enjoyed, I'd come to work every day looking for a fight with somebody high up in management. Um, <laughs> just take a couple of miles an hour off my fastball and I think I would have been better off.
0: Two-part question for you. Which phrase describes you best and why I love to win or I hate to lose? i probably hate to lose
1: you know winning uh is really i've come to learn it's at the expense of of somebody else which the toxic residue of that is something it's like it's like a nuclear strike if i win you lose there's a radioactive wasteland that's left there from your feeling of losing it's gonna last for a very long time so i don't necessarily need to to win against somebody but i don't want to lose the situation if that makes any kind of
0: sense What's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others?
1: You know, I like Eric Barker's Barking Up the Wrong Tree. If that, uh, and it just came out this year. If that, it's about, Eric is a thoughtful guy. It's about success. It's a real in-depth look. He's w- one of the most re- well-read guys I know. And he thinks like a regular human being, like, how do we figure this stuff out? If, uh, if his book would have come out while I was still teaching at Georgetown, I would have had it be
0: assigned reading. And sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Chris's suggestion of Barking Up the Wrong Tree for free, head on over to com slash book, and there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, Barking Up the Wrong Tree at salestuners.com slash book. Chris, what's currently at the top of your bucket list?
1: Figuring out how to bring more people into my company. I mean, I'm having, I'm having a ball with this. I think hostage negotiators are superstars. They're, they're really good negotiators. We're having a lot of fun helping people get better. So figuring out a way to sort of scale this out is is like my fun challenge right
0: now. What's the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today?
1: Figure out how to use the delays that save time. If you're grinding, you know, I don't want you to work any less hard. I just want you to make a couple two millimeter shifts here To work equally as hard, but also smarter. And a lot of that is going to be maybe hesitations, creating spaces and time, letting the other person talk a little bit, giving yourself a little bit more chance to think.
0: I'm going to get you out of here on this one. Chris, how could someone find you or connect with you if they wanted to after the show?
1: All right. Best way, subscribe to our newsletter, The Edge. Uh, Comes out once a week. It is a gateway to everything that we do. Short article on negotiation can get you up to speed three to five minutes, also tell you about training we're doing, and it's a, it's a great uh, avenue to the website as well. But the best way to subscribe to The Edge is to text the words FBI Empathy, all one word. Don't let, don't let your spell check autocorrect it uh, and put, put a space in there. It's FBI Empathy, all one word, and send a text to 22828, and that's 22828, and that'll sign
0: you up for the newsletter. Chris, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today on Sales Sooners.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Jim, it was great. I, I, I certainly appreciate the time being on with
0: you. I've had so many great conversations on this show, but to be able to spend an hour with the former head of FBI negotiation, well, that was pretty incredible. Chris said the best way to stay in touch with him is to subscribe to his Edge newsletter by texting FBI Empathy, all one word, to 22828. I've signed up for this, and I must say, it's an email I actually look forward to receiving. Let's get right to my top takeaways. Number one, empathy saves time. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but slowing down a sales process can oftentimes speed up the deal. If you learn to lean into your prospect and get a good emotional intelligence read, the empathy you show gets them to open up about their actual concerns. Number two, get to know When you are leading your prospect to say yes, they get worried about what they are committing to, and that anxiety creates confusion. But when you get them to say no, they feel protected and they have the illusion of control. Once a person says no, they'll likely give you implementable context to move the deal forward. Number three, there's always a favorite and a fool. If you can't get the scope of your prospect's problem, you need to realize they never envisioned you in that solution. In every deal, there's a favorite and a fool. The fool is often used to drive down the price of the favorite and expose their weaknesses. Thus, you should be looking for proof of life in every opportunity. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me, at SalesTuners, or shoot me an email, Jim SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right, I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay there. And they stay there. And they stay there. Because all I do is sleep, sleep, sleep. And if you go in here, put your hands in the air, make them stay there. If we learn from our mistakes, Why are we always so afraid to make them?